you're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by CECC, the Canada-Eurasia Chamber of Commerce. We are a non-profit focusing on trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of CECC and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights related to the region. Today we are hosting Mr. Jim Gibson, Chief Catalyst and Community Leader at the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, SAIT or SAIT. Jim is a passionate serial entrepreneur and author, drawing on over 30 years of experience in digital technologies, mentorship and ventures. Jim is also a co-founder of Thin Air Labs, which funds early stage entrepreneur-led technology ventures. He's a member of the A100 group of entrepreneurs who have successfully launched and exited no small point there, from Technology Ventures. Uh, and he's a board member of Mikata Health and Beakerhead, an advisor to Alberta Innovates and a mentor with Venture Mentoring Services of Alberta. Welcome, Jim Gibson. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. You know, the, the topics that we're going to discuss today revolve around the phrase digital literacy. And I am so unadvanced in that area as to be almost laughable. You, you've got to tell me, I know what it means to be literate, uh, and I know what the word digital means, more or less. <laughs> what does it mean to be digitally literate? You know, I can turn on a computer. Am I digitally literate? What does it mean? It's such a great question, Nathan, to start off, to get our, get our conversation, you know, off to the right track. And I think, I think we all, as you say, we all knew what computer literate was, you know, 20 years ago, we could flip on the switch and the, the machine would come off. And I think that, that that was, there was a certain point in, in, in time and that was important, but now it's less about the machine and more about how we connect using the digital tools, the tools of everything from email to social media, to all the, all the things that we use today to understand what their potential capabilities are, how to use them responsibly, um, how to think about your presence online and things like that. And so digital literacy is about, uh, you know, think about it as above the machine. It's saying the machine's fine. We got that all figured out. Let's talk about how we as human beings relate to each other using technology and how we can be thoughtful and smart about it. Um, that's that's what I would call digital literacy. I'm sure there's other, other definitions, but the the words I'm using in, in my work at SAIT uh, revolve around how human beings connect using technology. So I'm going to be uh, uh, provocational. I like doing that. Give me a negative example. What is somebody who knows how to use a computer and is very good with computers? What could that person do that is not digitally literate, that would show he is not digitally literate? Good. That's, a, that's a good way to, to express it. I think I think simple examples around our understanding of, of what gets tracked as we make our way through the internet, for example, you know, just understanding the digital footprints that websites do on us. I think that's a really important thing that individuals need to be aware of. So when I, you know, I, I have seen my, my daughter go onto websites and just about to click the buy now. And I go, is that really a, a legitimate website for, for example? So e-commerce, the commerce on the internet you really have to be thoughtful. And then all the way up to 
what are you know what are the what's the footprint I'm leaving in the world of uh, as I track my way through the internet? So those that's the kind of the negative side, identity, commerce, those kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. So you've just convinced me that I am in fact digitally illiterate. Thank you. <laughs> I doubt that. That's interesting because e-commerce is of course very important, especially now in the nations of uh, of Eurasia. We we had a one of the last events we did before the current turmoil was in fact uh, a um, a session on e-commerce where where uh, a Russian Russian companies got together and they talked about the percentages and how how obviously the pandemic changed things. So you know, when, for me, when I go to a website, I press buy now. I just pray to God Almighty that they're not uh, stealing my data somehow and that somehow my credit card number is safe. And I guess that makes me digitally illiterate because there is some way to check these things. Uh, and I simply, you know, I really have no choice. That's one of the reasons why I do buy very little online because I'm not smart enough to to, to protect myself. So, do you teach classes and uh, things like that? You know, your, your digital footprint and and how to how to buy things carefully? So one of the things that we're doing at, at SATE is we're introducing a series of, of courses and, and conversations called Digital Intelligence, DQ. So it's, you know, the old IQ, EQ, and now there's something called DQ, which is Digital Intelligence. And very much in, in that, it's everything from what does it mean to to be uh, online, what, what, is, what is my identity, where does it exist, who's looking at it? So that's the simple, what we call being a good digital citizen. What does it mean to be online? Um, what are the safe sites, all those kinds of things. The reality is, is a lot of the students, the younger students, the, you know, the 18 to 22 year olds, are something that we call digital natives. They've, they've literally grown up for the last you know, 15 years, 20 years with, with a device, a supercomputer in their pocket. So a lot of them are quite aware of, you know, the basics, but, but they take some things for granted. You know, for example, they, they, they don't really understand uh, the degree to which organizations are amalgamating their data. So part of what we are doing is just exposing a bit of that thinking and some of the strategies around how we how we manage that and make that available to all students. So students coming in going, oh, yeah, 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 I, I know what it means to be literate. We're going, maybe, but let's let's just unpack some of that a little bit and, and let's let's test some things. We have some examples where we where we throw sites up two different sites and say, which one do you think is a legitimate site? And I can tell you, many people don't know the difference. And so there's, I mean, that's that's the obvious, but there's a lot more subtlety and nuance to that. So, yes. So to answer your question, yes, we are definitely looking at courses for all students. That's very interesting. And, I, and I've heard phrases uh, thrown about such as digital etiquette, digital health, digital integrity. You know, again, I know what etiquette is. I know what health is. and I know what integrity is. <laughs> what does it mean to be digitally healthful? Uh, what is digital integrity? I, I, I've thrown out too many questions at once, perhaps, but could you elude on those uh, concepts? I, th- I think they're important to unpack. So, you know, digital, you know, digital etiquette is, is an obvious one, is that the ability to amplify, you know, the ability to take, you know, Nathan's message and then send it along or amplify it. There's a respect there that says that if I forward something along to, to another person, the ability to then amplify that anywhere is is extremely powerful. 
We don't know where our messages are, are going or, or our documents and so forth. And so as I move other people's work along, I forward your note or your presentation to somebody else. Good etiquette says, number one, let the person know that that's being forwarded along. Um, we often send things along without even asking another person whether that's legitimate and, you know, copy paste later, you know, off it goes into, you know, various other places. And so there's that, that kind of etiquette. There's also the notion that digital is a very cold medium. Often it's, we don't pick up the nuances that you and I having a conversation over video do or, or some of those things. So we're, we're very sensitive to this notion of the temperature, the warmth within digital. Digital is very cold, right? I often miss sarcasm or subtlety or those kinds of things. So we teach people about the language and how that, that gets conveyed across for sure. Interesting. Interesting. You talked to use the phrase digital natives. You know, you're talking about people in the age range, uh, 50, I guess, uh, 15 to 20, 22. You know, even my kids are older than that. So I'm definitely a dinosaur. But my daughter is 23. Perhaps she could be classified as a digital native. You know, how do you teach them to act responsibly when they communicate and behave online? You know, do you run into to, to, to digital natives telling you, I don't need to learn all this stuff. I already know it. Uh, very, very much. I mean, that, that happens all the time because things online aren't, aren't always what they seem. And without, you know, without making people cynical, there's just some good rules of thumb that's, that, that talk about, for example, one of the things that we, we do in one of the courses is do an, walk through a transaction from end to end. So imagine Nathan or Nathan's daughter presses the buy now button. One of the things that we do is say, let's walk through every single step of that process of where the, the bits of information from your credit card number to your address to all of those things. Where do they go? Who has them? Who's controlling them? And, and what happens? And we do the end to end all the way into the cash leaving your bank account and so on. You know, it's, it's extremely important to recognize and show digital natives that transactional uh, movement. It, it's quite fascinating. And they start to appreciate why things like some of the regulation that we're starting to see come in. One of the things that I say in my book, Tip of the Spear, as I say that the regulation around this kind of stuff is often way behind the technology. I, I talk about the genies of technology getting out of the bottle before the regulation catches up. And so we're trying to trying to show how that's starting to catch up. And how do you overtake that gap? That was actually one of my next questions. You, you did mention the technology genie getting out of the bottle. What do you do about that? I mean, is it only through, through education or do we, do we need to be lobbying our, our representatives? How, how do you uh, tackle that challenge? To me, it's the reason why I wrote my book and it's part of the reason why we're bringing in digital literacy and digital intelligence at SAIT is I worry about that one a lot because you know, it's one thing for e-commerce and, and, you know, my credit, you know, those kinds of things. But when we start to release some of the technology out into the wild, like like that's starting to happen in artificial intelligence or the things that are happening in, in synthetic biology and all those kinds of great things, we have to help and, and recognize that our legislative 
bodies and the people who are responsible for that need time to catch up. And we need to, we need to, there's a whole group of people who go, nah, let the internet be free. And I'm going, sure, that's one model. But the other model says that responsible use of the technology requires some thoughtful policy. So the number one thing, Nathan, that I recommend is that we have digitally literate politicians. And so, you know, the idea that that you're either a lawyer or, or some sort of policy, sure. But who's the chief technology officer for your country or my country? Well, I can tell you, we don't have one. And one of the things that I lobby with with my contacts in the government is for that digital literacy up at the policy level, which I think is really important. You know, you, you talked about sharing data. You know, who has your data? Who has your credit card number at this point? Who has your address? Um, and I've, how many times have I been on the site and they say, do you mind if we share your data with third parties? And I can say, yes, I mind. No, you're not allowed to. But many times I've been on sites and they don't ask me that. Um, I always wonder how much of my information gets shared without my knowledge or consent. I mean, I'm sure it's illegal to do that in most jurisdictions, but I, I, it, does it still happen anyway? What, what do you know about that? Oh, it, it certainly does. Um, there are, you know, there's this cat and mouse game, we call it, right? You know, the legislators, GDPR, the European efforts at, at locking down data is, you know, one step behind. So, yeah, I mean, we have this cat and mouse game of, of legislation versus capability versus, you know, those who are trying to keep ahead. So, you know, that's another reason why um, it, at SAFE, we've just launched a very comprehensive cybersecurity, digital security course. That's actually, that's actually an apprentice style course where people learn a little bit and then actually go on the job site in data centers, working inside companies to learn about cyber attacks and cybersecurity in real time because it's changing so fast. And so we, instead of it being, you know, a three-year course, see you later, and by the time you graduate, you're out of date, the team at uh, the School for Advanced Digital Technology has created this apprentice-style cybersecurity. So there's a bunch of things that we can do, but I, you know, I think number one is that we need digital liter, digital literate Congress, you know, politicians and, and, that, and that force. So I'm trying my best. What kinds of skills uh, that we don't have now, or perhaps that aren't considered important, are, are relevant or will be very relevant 10 years from now, 20 years from now? We, we, what, what skills are lacking that we, we should be looking at and developing? For in, in the business context, I think one of the things that I believe very strongly is understanding the power uh, and the potential of, of data. So what I mean by that is, is we are the exhaust, the data that's being gathered from all of the systems of our world is massive. That's interesting, but it's only when you can start aggregating and understanding that in the positive context that you can really start to get insight into everything from how, how my customers are doing or how my supply chain is working. So data literacy, understanding what the power of data and data presentation is really important for executives. It's really important for the C-suite to understand the power of what they've got. And so those are the skills that we want to see in every single student uh, within, within SAIT. So whether you're in the school of construction or the, we're, you know, SAIT's a polytechnic technical school. I don't care whether you're in the school of construction or the school of health or the school of, you know, hospitality and tourism. I want every single one of the students to understand the power and the potential of data. So data is number one. 
because garbage in, garbage out, right? If you feed these brand new systems of artificial intelligence with biased, you know, data that doesn't work, then you, you're just you're perpetuating that cycle. So I'm that's that you know you ask the question, what's the skill? I think that's one of the critical skills uh, there. Understanding the the importance uh, and the value of data, yeah. Correct. There's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence, AI versus human intelligence. Are we are we getting to the point where AI is going to surpass human intelligence? Do you think that's coming in the next 10 to 20, 30 years? Or is that the so-called singularity? Uh, are we ready for that change? I mean, I think it's coming eventually, right? What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, it's a great question. I I, I think absolutely it's, it's coming. And, and I think it will be a messy, messy affair, just given what I'm seeing. And, you know, Nathan, I, I use the word for AI instead of artificial. I talk about augmented intelligence. AI is not artificial in any sense. It's, it's, it's allowing the power of the human brain to be matched with the power of algorithms from the augmented uh, connection to, to data and machine learning. I try and stay away from those words. I, I, I use the word augmented so that you as the leading scientist or you as an executive or whatever you're doing, you augment what you do well. You augment what, what you're capable of doing. And so you just draw the straight curve of the power of, you know, the raw power of computing. And in the next, you know, 15 years, we're going to be at a point where, you know, general available artificial intelligence is going to be there for sure. The challenge for the human species is, are we going to get, are we going to start that wheel properly? Are we going to start it with, with good intent and non-bias and all those kinds of things? Huge, huge issue right now. And so that do you, you want to talk genies out of a bottle, Nathan? There's a genie that's that's just coming out of the bottle now. We're going to have to be very very smart about it. Oh, good lord! We could talk hours for that. You know, what do we do? Why should artificial intelligence t- tolerate even human beings? But this now we're getting off on a tangent, uh, and I'd like to discuss that with you separately. Uh, it has been said that we experienced twenty years of change over twenty months with the pandemic. Uh, many individuals and organizations are reflecting on the pandemic and how we, we learned uh, to, to do things remotely. Uh, hybrid is, is a word that we never used to use uh, in referring to meetings. How has your experience changed because of the pandemic and SAITS? And have you discovered new innovative ways to impart information thanks to digital technologies? I mean, other than the simple video call, obviously. I think what we've learned most of all as an institution, as an organization with 15,000 students and so forth, is that we can. Is one, of the, is, is one of the great learnings as we step away now, as we start to reflect back on the last two years, the organization looks at itself and says, you know what we just did? We took an entire curriculum and an entire group of students and, and a cohort and we brought it online in a matter of weeks. The idea that we could do that was unheard of. Just the ability to do that. So what it's, what it's telling the organization is the art of the possible. That if you, you know, if you, you know, we had a burning platform, we had to do it. But it was a reminder to us that you can, number one. Number two, that the, that the technologies that are available today are extraordinarily powerful. And we just... We needed to think through different ways. And so one of the things that we talk about at SAIT is innovation of things and innovation of ways. And I think that what the pandemic has taught us 
is that there's this innovation of way that's really, really powerful. So that the notion of hybrid is now like, it's absolutely thoughtful and we, we know exactly how to do that because we, we know we can do it. And so what that does is we start to do our next planning session for our academic plan for the next five years. It's just the art of the possible is now there. We're feeling very empowered by our ability to create. So that allows SAIT to be a connected you, a school to anybody, including your country or anywhere in Eurasia uh, and vice versa. We can, we can create a conduit for students anywhere. And so that, has, that forces us to up our game because now we're in competition with the world. But we also have the world at looking to come to us as well. So I, I, that's to me, that's, as, a, as an entrepreneur, that's game on time. That's, that's just a great opportunity. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on the world because it's a very interesting topic, but it's esoteric for us uh, because we are, at the end of the day, a, a, a national or multinational business association. What about Eurasia? Do you have students, uh, do you have programs that, that you teach uh, in, the, in the countries of Eurasia, in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan? Uh, do you have students that come over to partake in your programs or could they do so now in an online format without having to, without having to make the trip? Very much. I think I think this last couple of years has 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 created some some friction in terms of the ability for for both movement and opportunity. But on the same side, we're now capable of bringing in because of the online uh, capacity of the school. So to answer your question, absolutely, um, we do have programs that are available for international students, both on presence on campus, but also um, now virtually. And so. We're starting to really look at what what opportunities that we have. So, in in which of our eight schools would that make the most sense? Is it our school of hospitality and tourism? Is it our school of manufacturing and transportation and automation? So, we're just starting to create a brand new academic plan that takes into account a couple of key trends. Number one, as you talked about, Nathan, the hybrid concept, which allows us to have multiple modalities, and the second is where do we fit in the world? What is our stature in countries all, all over the place? And so we're being quite assertive and aggressive in figuring that out. Because I can tell you our, the, the quote competition, the, the students and courses in schools around the world are doing just that. So we have to up our game. And I think the, the most important thing we can do is bring the best of what Canada does to the rest of the world and showcase it that way. Um, and, just, and, and put ourselves in the game. So, yes. Good for you. And do you receive delegations? The city of, uh, city of uh, Almaty, for instance, uh, they want to send uh, uh, a group of municipal people over for, for extra training. Do you do, you do that sort of uh, industrial training for inward bound uh, delegations, business groups? We do, we do, we do some of that, not, not nearly as much. Um, we do have a group called ARIS, which is our applied research group that that works with international bodies to do specific projects around that and then we have a we have a group called corporate training that does specific cohorts and training for organizations that that organization less international than our group called ARIS so we have an applied research group that looks at some of the projects around the world for some of the best you know applied research and science um, and I think is really, really interesting. That's, and just a quick note, you know, the polytechnic model, like the ability of applied learning is really, really a powerful model in a world of fast changing technology. 
is you don't go away for three years or whatever and, and go into, a, into some theory course. Actually, it's applied. You actually are working on real projects with employers and students together. And that's, that's where technology meets the real world. And, and so we're, we're pretty keen on that. Very interesting. You know, you take a, a city that I will say digitally was quite primitive. Uh, I hope nobody's insulted by that. I'm talking about the city of Astana, now called Nur Sultan. But because of the International Expo, which was held there in 2017, they upped their game. And by God, they sent delegations all over the world. They got the best training, the best technologies. And the city of Astana became a very smart city. Um, and they uh, introduced technologies that were not being used anywhere else in the world. were not being used in the West. And uh, I, I, I'm not even uh, sh- sure if maybe they didn't send somebody to say. But uh, I'm wondering if that's an example that our Eurasian listeners could, could uh, pick up on. You know, that, that, as an example, you, know, you could teach those types of technologies. What does it mean to be a smart city? How can you become a, a, a smart city? And what, what are the technologies that can amplify quality of life? Am I, am I off the mark here or is that something that... Uh, You've zeroed in on probably one of the most powerful connections globally, which is this notion of sustainable smart. I, I try not to use the word smart, but just the notion of, of sustainable city design. How, how do we build everything from the transportation system to sustainable food, to energy and, and water and so forth? That is actually where all of this starts to combine. And guess what? It's absolutely consistent across the world. We, we, you know, if you go right down to it, we need to eat, we need to have, we need to heat our homes, and we need to have water, and those are under increasing stress across all of the world. So those are the kinds of sharing I think that uh, we're starting to see that sustainable city, the sustainable energy, the, the uh, conversations um, as a great way of sharing knowledge around the world. That's the power. So as you know, we started this conversation off with a bit of a worrying tone, you know, it's, it's, where's our data and digital literacy. But I think, Nathan, I think you've hit on where I think we as human beings can start sharing the power, which is around our sustainable opportunities. Cause it's quite, you know, the, the future of our cities is a technology driven data driven example. It really truly is. And it's highly shareable. These are things that happen across the world. So yeah, I, I, I love your, your focus on that. And I think that's very wise. I hope that we, uh, Serba, can can uh, cooperate with SAIT to educate uh, the nations of Eurasia or to, to, to impart you know, d- digital capacity and digital tech literacy to uh, uh, you know, officials representing uh, cities and, and municipalities and, and regions, potentially, from those countries. Yes. Now, what about student-centered teaching versus teacher-centered <laughs> teaching. You know, you have a classroom and, and historically the teacher stands in front and, and teaches, you know, 20 or 30 kids who are sitting in desks looking at the teacher. We always knew that perhaps in the ideal world you would have one student and one teacher, and that's very much, you know, a, a student-focused system. How can digital technology change that? Yeah, the old sage in the stage, we used to call it, right? Mm-hmm. And. Let me give you an example, Nathan, where I think it will really bring this to home. And you and I talked about this before. It's a program that we discovered a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, called How to Change the World. And the How to Change the World program came out of the University College London, actually developed by a Canadian. But one of, he was a professor there. And he basically put together a capstone course, meaning the, the, yeah, the final courses, that was a required course for all 17 of the undergraduate courses at UCL London. 
And what it was, was it was a cross-disciplinary, hands-on group of five to seven students that would be, uh, that would focus on a UN sustainability, one of the 17 UN, UN SDGs, we call it, in a geography around the world. And they would, they would unpack and learn about the problem. But the beauty of it was, is not only was it problem definition, critical thinking, systems thinking, it was actually using some of the most advanced digital technologies to bring people together in cohorts, share things online, create their project brief in, in virtual spaces and, and so forth. So it was, a, it was a triple whammy, A, cross-disciplinary across organizations, focused on sustainability and UN SDGs and then brought the best of the leading edge technologies. Well, we took a look at that at SAIT and said, wait a second, that's the future of education is this cross-disciplinary. And so we brought it in on a pilot basis this past year, and we're going to be working with, with the How to Change the World team out of London and, and Canada to bring those kinds of programs. And, and wow, the student feedback. So you use student-centric I can tell you, Nathan, the, the student feedback has been unbelievable because what we're learning is that, you know, the 20-year-old, 21-year-old, 19-year-old actually wants to work on things that matter. They actually want to go, my world in the next 20 years is going to be under a lot of stress and we need to figure some stuff out. These programs gave them real purpose and meaning. And so we want to start bringing some of the best of that using the best of digital technology and bring them together. So yeah, that I, that was a long answer to a, a simple question, but we're starting to see some of that power. Very interesting. So if I understood you correctly, How to Change the World is a program invented in Europe that uh, SAID has adopted, whereby students or groups of students are given one of the 17 or however many there are sustainability challenges that the UN has identified, and they are told to resolve this challenge through some project, to, to develop a project to resolve the challenge. You know, maybe it's clean drinking water, or maybe it's education. I'm just curious, have, you know, if, if, you've, if, you've, if you're assigning that to uh, everybody in a certain group, surely we have uh, 30 or 40 or, or 300 or 400 solutions to these problems. Have any of them been implemented? Are they useful solutions? Is, are, th are things actually happening with these papers, or is it just an academic exercise? Yeah, it's a great, it's, a, it's key. In the narrowness of a particular program, there's only so much you, you can do. What we do, so two, two answers to your question. Number one, what we do is, is we spend the energy in that program to getting the students and the group of students to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. The solution's critical, obviously. Why are we doing this? But what we do is get them to really unpack what's the real problem? And what's the real opportunity here? And, you know, two thirds of the of the program is actually defining what's going on versus rushing to some trivial solution that that. And so that's number one. Number two is that we're starting to connect these students up into the business students, into the into potential funding sources so that if they really do fall in love with the problem and have a solution that works, that they can then carry that on uh, subsequent. So um, stay tuned. Yeah, that's great. Now, tell us a little about SADT, not SAIT, but the School for Advanced Digital Technology. That's a new school that SAIT has, has recently developed, uh, recently launched. Uh, what is that school about? Can you tell us more about it? What, what are its programs and directions? Uh, and how will it advance digital literacy? SADT was uh, established just about two years ago 
with a generous, uh, very large gift from a private philanthropist here in, in the city of Calgary, um, who basically had made his fortune and looked around and said, there is a massive talent gap between the, the economy of today and the economy of the future. And we need to we need to accelerate the programs. And so he wrote a very large check. And around that, we, we built the school. And so the school's mission, and it's headed up by Dr. Rainey Wood, who was the head of our, our technology school before, and now it's merged into one. So the, the, the really the objectives of that are to get to identify the, the specific programming to help fill the job needs of, of today and, and in the next two to three years. So for example, that cybersecurity course that I talked about, there's huge demand right now for folks who understand how to, how to manage cybersecurity risks. Big investment in AI and, and, and data, analytics, data security, data, data intelligence, and so forth. So that's the School for Advanced Digital Technology is to, to identify the leading edge of technologies that employers are, are telling us they need today and, and right away. And so it's about scale, Nathan. It's about just, you know, we got to move faster, bigger. Um, Calgary, uh, as, a, as a city, um, is undergoing a, a huge transformation from an energy, oil and gas, to a diversified economy. And that creates all sorts of tensions. And we're betting that the investment in technology skills, programming, software engineering, all of those things need to move forward. And so we put a bold number on the table. Um, the, uh, the, our dean basically said 15,000 students in the next five years are going to come through this program and come through the series of programs that we're developing. So we have to up our game. So the school is really just taking the challenge and saying, let's go. Uh, it's time to get big time. And our, I'll tell you, the amount of uh, open jobs right now in the city are, are, are way too many. Um, and so we've got to help people make that transition. Well, good luck with that. It sounds like a very relevant and a very, very uh, important program, something important for the 21st century. Thank you. We, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to cover one topic that we haven't talked about, mentoring. You know, what does it mean to mentor? Uh, who are the mentors? What companies do they represent? And what, you know, how does mentoring enter into this entire equation? It, it's hugely important. And you, as you said in my bio, I'm a part of a, a group called VMSA, the Venture Mentoring uh, Services of Alberta, that was an MIT program that was introduced here in Alberta. And what, what mentoring is, 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 is the difference between working on the race car versus working on the driver. And we often get confused on, on mentoring is that, you know, everyone loves to advise a company or, you know, tweak here, tweak the engine here, you know, different sales or marketing or whatever. But it's actually the leader, the human being, the driver that mentoring is most powerful. And that's the consistency across generations. So we have a group, we have a group here in, in Alberta, um, VMSA is one of them. We have another group called Intergen, which is a group of, of, of individuals over the age of 70 who've been very successful that are actually working with startup organizations and, and, and companies to help their CEOs and leaders on the basics of human leadership and the basics of good, you know, good, good design, being a good... And so mentoring is, is essential. Um, why, sh why do we need to make the same mistakes over and over and over? You know, my gray hair has been earned. And so I'd like to be able to give that back some of the lessons of, of the day. 
and make it less about the company because, you know, frankly, you know, I'm not necessarily current on all the stuff that's going on, but make it about the human being. And I think that's a, that's a gift to give back. That's very powerful and very necessary. Well, good for you. I take my hat off to you. Uh, I think you're doing great work. I'm going to follow it up with two quick uh, 30 second questions for you. Can you please tell us what made you a leader, Jim Gibson? How did you become a leader and why? I think number one, I think it was, it was watching of my father as he grew through his career and he understood that I watched him deal not with the top people in an organization, but it's the people who are at the entry or at the bottom. And, and I watched how he interacted with every single one of them and he treated them with the same respect and, and personal advice and, and just connection that he would at, at the highest level. He would talk to a CEO the same way we talk to the receptionist or somebody cleaning the halls or whatever. And he taught me about humility. And I think great leaders are humble. They understand that they, they don't have the, all of those opportunities and, and that they need to keep their ears open and their hearts open. So that was my father and I watched him and observed him. And he's, he was one of the best leaders I've ever met. That's great. That's great to hear. And what does the future hold for you, for Sate? Where do we go from here? My answer to that is pay attention. Is the trends of technology or you know exponential curves are funny things you know, slow, slow, and then all of a sudden. And so we need to pay attention to the genies that are out, the things that are being released. And the future has huge potential for good. We have to pay attention. And I would argue that this next five years is a fundamental test of not just your country, my country, but the entire species. We have to make some very bold decisions about what we want it to be or or not. So um, my, my message about the future is pay attention and the world could be fantastic. Well, that's a wonderful message. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us, Jim. It's been a pleasure to have you on the, on the, on the show today. Uh, we were joined today by Mr. Jim Gibson, Chief Catalyst and Community Leader at the South Alberta Institute of Technology, which we refer to as SAIT. Uh, he is also uh, an author with 50 years of experience in digital technology, mentorship and ventures, and the co-founder of Thin Air Labs. Thank you so much, Jim, for joining us. My pleasure, Nathan. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Icebreakers, a podcast produced by CECC, the Canada-Eurasia Chamber of Commerce, supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the nations of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and give us a review on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to address questions to guests. To find out more about the series or to make a donation, please check out our website at www.ceccpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in.